Welcome to our panel this afternoon. Uh, the title of our panel is Women's Literature and Feminist Learning for a Lifetime. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Lori Rotskoff, and I will be moderating our roundtable discussion. The subject of our panel is Continuing Education in Women's Studies for Adult Students. The BCRW has a long tradition, now in its 20th year, of offering classes for adult learners in a range of disciplines, including women's literature, art, poetry, performance, and other subjects. Today we're going to explore the significance of these educational forums from different perspectives, including past and present women's center instructors and students. Continuing education in the humanities is a very valuable, yet often overlooked and underappreciated subset of higher education, and its relevance to academic women's studies, feminism, and activism deserves to be explored in more depth. The BCRW has always reached out to diverse groups and participants beyond the Barnard undergraduate community, including alumni and activist organizations. But in terms of formal teaching and instruction, the primary mission of conventional higher education and of most college and university women's studies programs is to educate undergraduates and graduate students who are typically between the ages of 18 and 30. Adult education is for the rest of us, people who are 30, 40, and 50-something, 60, 70, and 80-something years old, people in or past midlife with a yearning for serious intellectual engagement, for exposure to new perspectives on long-standing interests, and for the opportunity to engage with fresh ideas, subjects, and cultural works that we may never have studied formally in the classroom or did so many years ago. The center's adult classes provide us with continuing exposure to feminist scholarship combined with an opportunity to engage in meaningful, multi-generational dialogues with other women. And at the same time, they afford us the all-too-rare experience of what might best be called serious fun. Gathered around the seminar table, we're all there because we want to be there. There is no pressure to perform or, or, or earn a certain grade. And the focus is on shared discovery and the joys of learning in a structured, organized, and institutionally supported setting. The constant supply of Pepperidge Farm cookies and club soda <laughs> does not hurt either. Now, today's panel, we're, in our panel today, we're going to address both the serious and the fun aspects of feminist adult education. And I hope that we can all emerge with a better understanding of why this type of education is so valuable, and also to begin to think about how we might even think about expanding, enhancing, and improving it, not just here at Barnard, but at other places as well. So for our for format today, I'm going to um, introduce each of our panelists and pose a few questions to that panelist um, that we will discuss and in a kind of informal way. And, when, and then I'll ask a few questions of myself. And then we will open it up to questions and answers with the audience, which we're really very much looking forward to doing and hearing from you, um, your questions and comments as well. So we're going to start um, with Leslie Kalman. Um, Leslie is the executive director of the Montner Project, the National Lesbian Health Organization based in Washington, D.C., which was founded in 1990 and provides direct service and support to lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women with cancer and other serious illnesses and their families and caregivers. Prior to joining the Montner Project, Dr. Kalman also served as vice president of external relations for the International Center for Research on Women, and she also worked at the uh, Legal Momentum, which is the National Women's Rights Organization, form formerly known as the now Legal Defense and Education Fund. There's a story there. <laughs> There's a story there, right? <laughs> uh, and for over 17 years, I'm sure there's many stories here as well, Dr. Kalman taught here at Barnard as a professor of political science and women's studies. And from 1991 to 1998, she served as the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Uh, in 1991, during that time, she actually initiated the center's adult learning courses, including her own course, Women's Cultures, Women's Lives, a reading group that emphasizes contemporary fiction by women of many cultures and which is celebrating its 20th year this year as an ongoing class. So I'm thrilled that Leslie is here with us. And, um, and so my first question for you, Leslie, um, can you talk a little bit about how and why you started this program for classes, uh, for adult, of classes for adults at the, at the center? What was your motivation and how did things go during those early years? <laughs> how, did, how was that? Um, how was that? 
I became director of the Women's Center in 1991 and, and really saw as, as my charge to increase um, the number of women and men coming to the Barnard campus and taking advantage of Women's Center activities. Um, and so I made a number of changes in the kind of programming we did and the kind of outreach we did. I started a newsletter that went to uh, all Barnard alums in the metropolitan area. Um, which continues to this day. Um, but I just thought the Women's Center and, the, and Barnard as an institution had a lot more going on than the public knew. Um, so, and one of the things that people often asked me, I used to teach a course, an undergraduate course called Major Texts of the Feminist Tradition, um, which I didn't create, it predated me, but I took it over and, and taught it for a number of years. And um, I, I thought there were a lot of people who wanted to take some, you know, kind of serious, continu serious continuing education courses. So I started actually teaching major texts of the feminist tradition. We met twice a month. We read serious stuff, um, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Mary Wollstonecraft, on up. And it was intense. I mean, it was, it was really a college course. Um, and we had five or six students, one of whom who unfortunately uh, couldn't be here today because she's at the Monterey Jazz Festival. Uh, Marguerite Stratton was in that very first class and has been in the reading group for 20 years. Uh, and she brought in a friend of hers who was not a Barnard alum. Most of the folks in the group are Barnard alums, but that is not a requirement. Um, and she has also been in the group for now 19 and a half years. Um, so we did that for a couple of years. And then... Uh, I like an audience, and I only had five or six students, so I wanted to figure out something that would bring in more people. Also, it was feeling a lot like work, because after all, it was basically teaching the undergraduate course I taught. Um, so I started introducing more and more novels. So the, the third year, we came up with some other title, and it was almost all fiction. And, well, bingo. I mean, that's when suddenly I had, you know, 15, 20 students. And then the third year came up with the title, Women's Cultures, Women's Lives. And then I decided enough with the titles. We'll just be Women's Cultures, Women's Lives forever. Um, and as the years went on, we read more and more very contemporary fiction by women. So now we almost entirely read um, fiction by women that's been written in the last 12 to 24 months. I mean, so it's very, very new. Um, except that people did want to read something every now and then that wasn't so new. So we introduced the classic, and every year we argue over what is to be the classic. Okay. Um, so every year you have a classic on there. Um, what keeps people coming back for more? And, and the other thing I want to make sure we talk about is what, what does the class setting provide um, that, that reading these books on, some, you know, on your own independently would not afford you? Um, people invariably say, whether they liked the book or didn't like the book, what they look forward to is the discussion. Um, this is a group of incredibly smart women. Uh, I mean, what, what people get by coming to the group um, is each other. Uh, it is a fairly structured group. I think much more structured than many people's reading groups are in that um, I am the teacher, which translates into the following. It means that I prepare questions discussion questions for every class, which I have to tell you are much better than the discussion questions you find in the back of books where they say these are the discussion <laughs> questions. Those are so boring. Um, and so we, we start, we have those questions. Um, but I also learned years ago, uh, you know, from being an undergraduate teacher, there, we've got a bunch of smart people in the room. Some of them are chattier than others. So I have, we start every, we, we meet for an hour and a half. Um, and we start by going around the table and with the, you know, provocative and insightful questions. So what did you think of the book? So, so what did you think of the book? And so for half an hour, we go around the table. And almost invariably, every brilliant question I have come up with is, is laid out in that discussion. People also find out who liked and who didn't like the book, which sometimes is a real shocker. I mean, so people come in thinking, oh, this is the best book I ever read. And the other 15 people said, I, I really didn't like the book. Or vice versa. Yeah. Um, I think what's really vital to making a reading group work is that people um, want to hear what the other people have to say. 
learn from it, respect the differences. Um, I mean, so I always make jokes about the fact that it's really boring if everybody likes the book or everybody doesn't like the book. And the, the reality is that almost never happens. Mm -hmm. And it isn't like there are factions. I mean, every book, it's, it's different, you know. So um, people really are interested in what the other people thought of the book and why they, th you know, thought this about the book. Um, so it's that exchange, uh, that, that very, very, very respectful exchange of ideas. Um, you know, occasionally you get somebody in the group who doesn't like that situation. I, we one year had, one year, had a judge. Uh, <laughs> and she would say what she thought of the book. And then somebody else would say, well, I, I, I really don't agree with that. And then she would look shocked. <laughs> it's like, no, no, she's the judge. <laughs> she, she, she has spoken the truth. So people have to be... I take it the judge didn't last long. She, one, one year. <laughs> one year. Um, the jury overthrew her. Yeah, you know, she wasn't used to having her pronouncements be contradicted. Um, so that's, that's what makes it run. And we, and we stick to the book. Uh, I mean, over 20 years, you can imagine that we all have come... I mean, not everybody's been in the group for 20 years, but people have come to know each other very well. But, you know, discussions about the children, the sister-in-law, uh-uh, no, we're talking about the book. So um, after the group, often several of us go out to dinner, and then we talk about the children and the sister-in-law, but not until then. And it sounds like you don't even have to do too much redirecting, that the, the group sort of knows that, that they're well-trained. The yeah, they're, they're well, well they've been well-trained. <laughs> Um, Leslie, how did you choose the books for your classes? Um, you once mentioned to me that you treat women's literature as a kind of sociology. Right. Uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, I'm a political scientist by training, so uh, my, my first disclaimer to the group every year is I'm not a literature person. Um, and, and I joke, not, not so jokey, that I treat literature as sociology, as, as history. And, um, we purposely pick literature from women of many cultures. So, uh, and what's, one of the things that's been really interesting to me looking back at the reading list is in the early years it was actually difficult to find um, fiction uh, written by women from Africa or South Asia. And now it's like just go to your local bookstore and go to the most popular list and there, there they all are. But in the early years, I actually reached out to women's studies professor colleagues at other places who taught African studies, you know, and said, what should we be reading? Um, now, time marches on. Women authors much more prevalent. Women of particularly um, immigrant, ch children of immigrant, first-generation American and British writers, um, much more easy to find. Um, so now we it, it really, you know, we look for interesting interesting books and try to get as, you know, um, uh, prize-winning books, books that get good reviews. I do a lot of online searching of the Washington Post and New York Times and plenty of others. Um, and I will look for fiction that represents different um, uh, ethnicities and cultures. But of course, this is a group. So I present about 15, 20 choices and then we argue for a couple of months until we get so it down to ten. It's an active process of, oh, yes. of selecting those books. Oh, interesting. I don't do it that way, <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, but I do take suggestions, and uh, so that we all have ways of trying to uh, figure out what what our students are interested in reading and learning from those suggestions. Yeah. Now we we often get somebody saying, "No, I already read that. It's really terrible." <laughs> So that usually mixes that. Right. And, um, but sometimes they'll say, oh, I read it, I didn't like it, but I'd be interested to hear what other people have uh -huh. to say. Oh, that's interesting, too. So. Now, your career has spanned everything from formal college teaching to academic research to serving as the director here at the center and to your current position at the, at the Montner Project. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your different roles, right, scholar, administrator, activist, how these affect how you read literature or sort of vice versa. What are the kinds of spillovers uh, from other parts of your life and your career uh, into the world of reading serious fiction and discussing it? Yeah, I, I don't think it's unique to me. I mean, I think every reader, and we are a bunch of serious readers, brings their own life experience to whatever they read. So I happen to be the resident lesbian, so I'm always deciding something is a lesbian novel, even when it's not, just to <laughs> rile people up. Um, in, uh, the group has many attorneys, 
Many psychotherapists, this is the Upper West Side, the psychotherapists are frequently turned to for expertise. Um, but everyone, including myself, brings, um, you know, in my case, it's been social activism. It's been that I've lived abroad. But many of us have traveled or lived in other places, and all that enters in all the time. But again, for us, um, and I think everyone there is, is interested, profoundly interested in what makes the world work and how does the world work and how, how can change happen. So if I forget to ask the question, somebody almost always says, is this a feminist text? And then we argue about what does that mean. In that particular context. That moment, yeah, that's very interesting. In that moment. Great. Okay. Well, uh, we'll have a chance to hear more from you with the, with the Q&A, but I want to thank you for that. Pleasure. Um, and we're going to turn now to um, our next roundtable panelist, Heather Hewitt. Um, Heather is a writer and professor. Her work has appeared in a range of academic and mainstream publications, including the Women's Studies Quarterly, the Scholar and the Feminist Online, the Journal of the Association for Research on Mothering, the Women's Review of Books, Brainchild, and the Washington Post. Now, during 2004 and 2005, Heather actually taught here at the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And I should say that I was actually a student in that class, and that's where we met. Uh, so Heather served one year teaching adult ed, and then she moved on to what is her current position. She is an assistant professor of English and Women's Studies at SUNY New Paltz, where she has also served as the director of women's studies and has been in, uh, and did so for six years, and she has just graduated from that position. Um, so I'm happy to introduce Heather. I'm so glad that she's here as well. And some questions for Heather. Um, Heather, could you spend a few minutes um, talking a little bit about and comparing your experiences teaching adults here uh, with your experiences teaching undergraduates um, at SUNY New Paltz? How do you plan your classes and engage with students in ways that are both uh, similar and different in these two different contexts? Well, I obviously have a lot less experience teaching. I only really taught here for a year. And at this point, I have a lot more uh, years in the classroom with undergraduates. So, um, But it's given me a, a unique opportunity to think about that class that I taught when I met Lori, um, which was a class called the Literature of Motherhood. Um, and now, six and a half years later, I'm teaching a course at SUNY New Paltz, a women's studies course, also on motherhood and mothering. So it's given me a great chance to think about these two courses, um, both how they're um, different and also and how they're similar. Um, and the differences, I think, are, are perhaps obvious, um, right? So college undergraduates, um, you have uh, grades, you have the fact that students are there because they are trying to graduate and get this degree, um, and they are expected to do a certain amount of work, um, some of which they don't always want to do, even if they're interested in the subject. So there are all of these different reasons for a student to be in the classroom. Um, you know, ultimately, the idea is that you graduate and you get a job, at least that used to be the idea um, before... <laughs> this ongoing recession. Um, so um, that's, that's an obvious reason. Lori referred to um, the, the way in which adult education, in some ways, although I think people bring different reasons into the classroom, ultimately there's, there's um, no pressure to be there. Um, there's, I think, an interest in, in finding community and in finding an intellectual discussion and in, in having some serious fun and having some kind of framework, um, finding other smart people to talk with. Um, so I think it's a little bit different in terms of the reasons why um, someone might enter the classroom. Obviously, as well, um, there's the difference between six weeks, which was the course that I taught when I met Lori, and 16 weeks, which is the college semester. Um, and I've been thinking about how I made those choices in that course that I taught for Barnard. I called it the literature of motherhood, and so we were reading more than fiction. We read poetry, we read nonfiction, and I tried to tap into current debates, um, issues that were current. As I remember, we read um, a smattering of different writers, Sharon Old, Cecily Berry, uh, a book by Alison Pearson called I Don't Know How She Does It, which is actually uh, coming out in its uh, movie form in a few weeks. So, you know, we had six weeks, and that was, um, you know, it, it, they were wonderful discussions, but it was six weeks, whereas my 16-week undergraduate course, of course, <laughs> is a lot of work, as uh, Leslie mentioned. It's fully interdisciplinary, and I do feel, um, I, you know, I've structured it in such a way that we are going through these different feminist theories of motherhood and mothering, um, so we, you know, read a lot of uh, sociology, we read a lot of psychology, political science, as well, of course, as a creative literature. 
So that's another obvious difference. And then the third, perhaps obvious difference, is that um, the life experiences that students bring into the classroom are quite different. So that, that course that I taught at Barnard um, in 2005, as I remember, most of the students were mothers. Um, some were grandmothers. Right. Um, they were at different points in their lives, um, and I don't know, I, I can't remember the details of whether, you know, say some had adopted children versus having biological children, but I do think, at least um, as I remember, most people um, had a, a child that they cared for. And in some cases, I'm thinking of the, of the woman who wrote her master's thesis on motherhood. Um, in some cases, the students had spent a lifetime thinking about what it meant to be a mother and what it meant to uh, be a caregiver um, and brought in, uh, in some cases, decades of experience, of personal experience, um, and then intellectual thought and analysis, and in some cases, even um, you know, political um, action around the issues. So as you can imagine, the conversations we had were always really interesting. And because I think people brought such different things into the classroom and people had embarked on such different life trajectories, um, you never quite knew where conversations would go. And that is something lovely, I think, about adult education, especially when you're able to hear, when people are able to listen what other people have to say. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to see how people read um, different texts. I think the, the reactions can be quite different depending on what the life experiences have been, what the perspectives are of the students involved. So I actually, as I, as I think back on it, it's quite challenging as a teacher because you don't know sometimes where the discussion is going to go. Um, it's a very different role, I think, than being an, an undergraduate teacher. Not that undergraduates don't bring different experiences into the classroom, they do, but when I think about uh, simply the population in my undergraduate classroom, I have, first of all, mainly students who are not mothers. Um, I think two of them are. I don't know if there are others who haven't voiced anything about it, but um, mainly they are daughters. Um, so they, the, their, their main um, uh, way in which they think about the issues is either having a mother or having a father and or having a, a major caregiver in their lives, perhaps a grandmother. So they've thought about the issues from a different Thank perspective. You. And I, I should say as well, I have, I have two students who are sons. Um, so they also add um, a different perspective in the classroom. Um, and so based on um, their life experiences, they are just simply interested in different things. So we're four weeks into this class, and I have to say I detect a lot of interest in this concept of mother blame. In fact, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard some of my students, I've assigned this book, we, we don't meet next week because of the Rosh Hashanah holiday, and I have overheard some of my students talking about the fact that they have started this book on mother blame before it's due. I mean, we're not even talking about it for, you know, two more weeks. And two weeks ago, one of my students was saying that she started it. And um, I've never had that happen in a class. I have never had students start the reading early because they're so interested. So... Um, you know, I suspect that perhaps for some students, they are maybe thinking about this concept in relationship to their own mothers or their own caregivers um, and thinking about the impossible stereotypes and expectations that we have in our culture um, that perhaps some of them have used in their own judgment of their mothers. So um, it's an interesting moment, right, to, um, to have a, an opportunity to talk about these issues and to talk about the structural and the political um, and the economic uh, dimensions to, um, to these um, individual and personal experiences. Um, so there are, despite these differences between these two groups, there are also similarities. Um, I think that in both cases, because they are, you know, a women's studies class or a class that is, is deliberately feminist, as in the case of the Barnard class, um, I think students come in willing to um, probe into the personal, to think about the personal as well as the intellectual and the political, and I think that always makes for the best kinds of conversations and the most honest kinds of reflections. And I also think as a, as a professor of women's literature, um, I, I always notice that um, literature, creative literature, fiction, um, sometimes nonfiction and poetry really sparks a lot of students in a way that um, as brilliant as the ideas may be in, in a piece of sociological literature, um, somehow the creative literature gets students going. So I think that's, 
that's something that certainly was the case um, with both groups, with the Barnard group and with my undergraduates. Um, so I guess yeah, I'll stop there. Okay, yeah. great. Um, the B Barnard community is fortunate to have the, the Center for Research on Women and, the, and these classes. Um, Heather, what do you think about um, other places that don't have a center like this? How can these other institutions also reach out to broader communities of women professionals, activists, and other populations outside the conventional body of college and university students if they don't have a center like this from which to base these classes? Um, I mean, I, first of all, I have to say, I, I just, I envy this center. I think it's, it's beautiful, um, and I think it's uh, really incredible that you, you founded this particular part of it, right, the adult education. Um, and I think that adult education, it, it can take a lot of different forms at, at New Paltz. We don't have a center like this. We're a state university. We have, I think, just less money uh, to do things. But we do, um, so our outreach takes the form of things like conferences, um, which are a little bit easier to pull off, I think. Um, but I, I do think that, that adult education is something I've given a fair amount of thought to because I do think it can be such a central part to a feminist vision of education. And in some ways, I think it, the, the challenge is that it's contrary to the mission of, of an undergraduate college, which is really focusing on undergraduate students. And I think when revenues are um, scarce, I think it can be difficult. Um, and I think as well, sometimes adult education is viewed primarily as a, a venue for raising money, as, as, as bringing money into a college. And I think that um, while it can do that, I think solely to view it in that way can lead to an impoverished vision of, of what adult education can be. Because as I remember, um, the discussions that we had were really rich, and I think that given the fact that you can return to ideas or texts at different points in your life and take something totally different, it makes sense, right, to have opportunities to try to do that over a lifetime. Right. Yeah. Um, life is long, after all, right? Yeah. Um, okay, Heather, as a writer, you're also committed to reading, reaching a broad audience uh, beyond an academic readership and beyond your students. How do you think that feminist bloggers and journalists and activists could benefit from either taking or teaching continuing ed classes in women's studies? In other words, what kinds of connections do you make or can we make between feminist journalism and continuing education? Um, well, I, th I think it's a really interesting question. I, I think that um, anybody who writes is interested in communicating with larger groups of people, and I think that continuing education is a vehicle for doing that, of, of getting a sense of um, what uh, adults think uh, about particular issues of trying out new ideas, of getting a sense of, um, you know, where the interest is. So I, I certainly think from the perspective of a blogger or a journalist or a writer, I think there would be a lot to interest one in either taking or teaching a class. I think that it's, it's another way of creating community and getting a sense of what the, the conversations are out there that you might not necessarily see um, in the mainstream media but might be quite heated and passionate. And so it's an alternative vehicle for, for that kind of knowledge, I yeah, guess. I yeah. agree with you. And I think uh, it's something in the future we might think more about, offering some types of combined experiences or bringing writers in to the program in a more, more obvious way. Um, and finally, I just wanted to ask you, um, what can professors, those of us who are in the room or perhaps will, who will view this, um, this video in, in the future, those who are profession, professors in the conventional classroom, what can they learn from adult ed? What, in other words, what insights does adult education have to offer the conventional classroom? and the conventional age of those students? Yeah. Well, in a way, my answer is the same as, as my answer to the last question, but I just, I just think that because we, as we go through life, we gain experiences, our perspectives alter and shift. I think what a gift, right, to be able to tap into that as a professor and to take the same book even as, I guess, you started doing that and then sort of shifted away from that. But, you know, what a gift to see how people at different moments in their lives react differently. And I think you get a sense of the, the multivalent and uh, complex, complex dimensionality of, of books, right? Of, of how much they have to offer to people at different moments. Okay, yeah. thank you so much. That is actually a perfect segue into our next panelist, um, who is Stephanie Stahl. Um, and Stephanie, I have to ask you really quickly, sure. what year did you graduate from Barnard? 1993. Okay, 1993. I had to fill that in the blank here. Okay, so Stephanie is a Barnard alum, a proud Barnard alum. She graduated, as she just mentioned, in 1993. Um, she worked in the film and publishing industries as a literary scout before she turned to writing as a career herself. 
She worked as a reporter for the Newark Star-Ledger, and then she wrote her first book titled The Love They Lost, Living with the Legacy of Our Parents' Divorce, which was published in the year 2000. And this was a journalistic memoir about the long-term effects of parental divorce on her generation. And more recently, she is the author of a book called Reading Women, How the Great Books of Feminism Changed My Life, uh, just published in 2011. Um, Stephanie's articles and essays have appeared in the Washington Post, Glamour, and other publications. And after graduating from Barnard and also the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, Stephanie has recently received her law degree from Brooklyn Law School, where she received a Prince Scholarship and has held legal internships at the Center for Reproductive Rights, Equality Now, and the law school's asylum clinic, the Safe Harbor Project. And Stephanie lives with her family in Brooklyn, New York, and um, she's here um, today. And Stephanie, I wanted to ask you first off, okay, so about 11 years after you graduated from Barnard, you felt compelled to return to these halls, <laughs> um, and in particular to reimmerse yourself in the feminist text class, which actually, that must be the same the version same of the class that yeah, Leslie yes. also taught. So we have so many continuities here today. Um, so Stephanie came back, uh, and this is actually the subject of her book, which I've read and actually reviewed and highly recommend. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I was hoping, Stephanie, that you could tell us a little bit more about um, why you did this, uh, what was going on in your life and at that moment that brought you back. Sure. Um, I have to say first, you know, I'm coming from the student perspective. I'm flanked by these people coming from the teaching perspective. And as Leslie and Heather were talking about their classes, I'm thinking, oh, I want to take that class. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, so basically what was happening in my life, I, um, I had just gone through some major life transitions. Um, within a couple of years, I had gotten married. I'd had a child. Um, I'd written my first book. And I had left New York City and moved to Annapolis, Maryland. And um, so, you know, basically the, the first couple of years of that, I was reeling a little bit um, just from all the changes that had been happening in my life. And, you know, at, at some point I thought I really was craving a space to think about my identity as a woman and as a mother and as a wife and all these questions that were coming up. And I was feeling like I needed some time and I needed and that space to, to really think about these questions. Um, so, you know, there is a, there's a bit of a funny story attached to this. I was with my daughter, and I was at the bookstore, and I don't know if this is an, an affliction that hits all new mothers, but I had to read everything about motherhood. You know, I felt like, even though it's been going on since the beginning of time, I felt like I needed to, you know, what was happening to me was so new and unique, and I needed to know everything I could about it. So, you know, I had read all these books that had come out about motherhood, and I'm, I'm looking at the bookshelf, and I stumble across The Feminine Mystique, which I had read in Femtex when I took it as an undergraduate. And I, I hadn't looked at it since. And I pulled it off the shelf, and I started flipping through it. And I had one of these moments where I was reminded of myself when I read it as an undergraduate. I found myself identifying to certain parts of the book that I had not identified with as an undergraduate. And it was just one of those moments where I thought, huh, I wonder what it would be like to go back and take this class, which had been such a great class that I had taken during my undergraduate years. It had such an impact on me. And so that was kind of the beginning of the idea, you know. And it, it grew from there, and I realized that I could come back as an alum. Barnard has this great, you know, program where you can audit classes as an alum. And um, so, you know, I started to, to put the wheels in motion and came back. And it was also this idea of serious fun. I thought, what a fantasy to come back and not have to worry about grades and really enjoy the process of reading and being in the classroom. That is very liberating, isn't it? It's also liberating, liberating from the teaching side when you don't have to grade the papers. I just might want to point that out. Um, but in any case, uh, so when you got back into the classroom and you convinced the professors to let you come back and audit it in a very serious way, um, how did your response to the, these works of literature and feminist theory, whether it be Friedan's book and many other books that you read, how do you think your responses differed the second time around from, from the young Barnard undergraduates that you had a chance to meet? Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of what Heather was saying. I mean, I was coming from a very different place. So I was in a classroom with undergraduates who were worrying about grades, about graduating. Um, a lot of the, the young women in the class also had internships or jobs. And so there was a sense of, you know, this was, they were in that mindset of they're in school and, and they're tr just trying to get through the semester. Um, so I think what I was focusing on a little bit more was how my reading was different, you know, so I was sort of comparing myself as an undergraduate to how I was reading the books in the present, 
And, and that was really interesting. And I think that was what, I think that's what's so wonderful about rereading is, you know, you read a book for the first time and you engage with the ideas and it's, it has that fresh sense where you're, you know, it's, it's new and exciting. When you reread a book, it's, becomes this multi-layered experience where you have not only you know your your current reading of it but it's echoing back to how you read the book the first time around and it really creates an internal dialogue with your younger self which can be very revealing and and really you know help you kind of hone in on on what you believe about things and challenge you in a certain way that reading something for the first time doesn't mm-hmm. Uh, what was the most valuable thing you think you gained from returning to the classroom other than having this structured way to actually, you know, in some ways also remove yourself from the domestic demands mm-hmm. and have the space to pursue that in a way that, frankly, was quite fortunate for it you uh, that many of us don't have. Uh, you know, what, do you, what did you take from it? What, was the, what were the big values for you? Well, I think, you know, it was such, it, it was such a gift to be able to do this, to have the opportunity to spend one day really having that kind of serious intellectual engagement to really think about these ideas that were so pertinent to my, my everyday life. And um, I think probably one of the most important things I took away from it is that it gave me back my critical eye. You know, I think when you're in college, it's you develop that, it's part of the learning process. You leave college and sometimes there aren't as many opportunities to really exercise that critical eye. And so that was a very valuable lesson and it's something that I've tried to keep up yeah, afterwards. That's, that's so true. I had never thought about that. Uh, just the, the, the fact that you lose that, those opportunities to, to keep those analytical and critical skills fresh. Exactly. Um, that's right. Um, my next question for you can be sort of summed up as a kind of why feminism question. Um, obviously, you know, you have an, a hunger for ideas and stimulation, but you could have taken a class in a lot of things. Um, but in this case, you, you went straight back to fem texts. Um, what, why, why did you do that? Why in particular um, did you choose that class and how did that help you make sense of the issues that you were grappling with in your life? Well, you know, part of it is that a lot of you know, as I said before, a lot of kind of the things that I, the issues that I was thinking about in my, in my life dealt with issues of being a woman. And, you know, I consider myself a feminist. This was a class I had taken as an undergraduate that really changed my ideas about women and women's roles. And so I think a large part of it was that I wanted, I wanted to get back into that community of of authors, even the authors I had read. I mean, I sort of felt myself leaning toward, you know, getting some some different ideas about what it means to be a woman. I mean, the thing about feminism that's so great is that, you know, first of all, it's evolving, it's dynamic, but it also challenges some of the traditional scripts that are out there. And I was really looking for that. I was looking for that that you know opportunity to to kind of question what was coming at me culturally. I, you know, I feel like when you, especially the, when you become a first-time mother, I think there's this period of vulnerability where you're really susceptible to cultural messages. And there's a huge, you know, the rhetoric of motherhood is immense. So it, I, it was a way for me to, to sort of rally my forces you know, and get back to, get, um, to reread these books and to engage with these authors again. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, are there any particular books that you've read, either when you returned to that class or maybe more recently? You've written in, in your book, and you've talked about how books, for some of us, books are the, are the life rafts, right? Mm-hmm. There are these psychological, intellectual, and cultural life rafts that we can turn to um, when we are dealing with personal issues and we need a bigger picture um, to situate ourselves within. Are there any books in particular that you read that help you make a more fruitful connection between your own life and the broader world? Mm -hmm. This is a tough question because I feel like every book offered me something. Um, I think if I I had to pick one book, um, well, you know, certainly every book I read in the class Mm -hmm. was was interesting and and provided me some perspective, especially reading these books in the classroom setting and this directed inquiry. Um, Outside of the class, I would say there was a book that came out. It came out in the late 90s called Do They Hear You When You Cry by Falzia Kasinga. Oh, I don't know that book. And she was, um, she was a young woman who fled her home in West Africa because 
she was going to be forced to undergo FGM. And so she came to the United States, and it's told in her own voice, and she got here illegally, and she was put in detention. And it's her experience in Africa, coming to the United States, being in detention, and finally getting out of it. And, you know, this this book actually was very important to me on a lot of different levels. It's a really wonderful book, um, very poignant. It's, it's great to hear it in her own words. She's really telling her own story. And, um, and just, you know, in general, incredibly inspirational. I mean, a woman who's grown up in a certain culture who had the, the courage to, to break out of it and to come to the United States and just also what she went through when she got here and the inequity of that. Um, and ultimately, it has a happy ending. She, um, her case actually changed asylum law, so FGM became a basis for asylum. Prior to that, it was not. So, um, so it's you know, it was this book that made me realize you know one person can affect change. It had a major impact. I mean, obviously. it had a major impact. And then from there, I actually ended up going to law school and doing some asylum work myself. So on a personal level, I found it very, very inspiring. So I thought that, it was that's really it was great. Wonderful. We've all taken note of that book, I think. Right? <laughs> we'll be on the list next year. Um, Okay, so you, Stephanie, you're actually the kind of student, a perpetual life student that that we teachers here at the center and doing adult ed live for um, and want to see more of. So I'm just wanting to know, you know, not that you have a lot of free time now, you know, balancing your family life and your your new career as a lawyer, but if there were something, a class that you could see offered here or perhaps anywhere, you know, what what would be next for you on your intellectual journey as a perpetual student? Anything in particular? I I really, you know... There. No time. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, there's always time. Um, yeah, that's a tough one, too, because there's so many classes that would be interesting. I was thinking, you know, maybe because when you're an adult, your goals are a little different than when you're an undergraduate, that it could be interesting to have classes that are um, that have a theme mm-hmm. as an organizing principle, you know, like happiness or shame or motherhood was one, you know, right. but things like that, because usually it is a little bit more of a philosophical endeavor, and you can delve more into that one theme from different perspectives. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's a and great idea. And that would idea. make great discussions, yeah, too. Yeah, that would be. So. And we'll talk more about that. Um, okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, okay, so I actually want to introduce myself. I, I didn't get a chance to do that, so I'll just say a few words about myself before I pose a few questions to myself and then answer them. <laughs> and then we will turn over this uh, roundtable to uh, the audience. Um, for those of you who came in late, my name is Lori Rotskoff, and uh, I'm a cultural historian specializing in 20th century American women's and family history. I've been teaching here at the BCRW since 2005, since I was a student in Heather's class. Um, and I also teach at the Scarsdale Adult School in Westchester County, uh, where I've been for about three or four years as well. In the past, I've also taught undergraduates at Yale and Sarah Lawrence College. My book reviews have been published in the Women's Review of Books, the Chicago Tribune, and Reviews in American History. And my first book is titled Love on the Rocks, Men, Women, and Alcohol in Post-World War II America. It was published in 2002. And I am currently co-editing a book on the history of feminism and childhood in the 1970s. And in particular, this book is focusing on the now classic children's book, record, and television special, Free to Be You and Me. And this book will be published in 2012. So that's what I do when I'm not busy teaching my classes here. Um, But anyway, there were a few things I wanted to say about the classes that I've been teaching. Um, I'm very fortunate to have some of my students here in the audience today um, as well. Um, And one of the things I wanted to talk about is why is memoir, the classes that I've been teaching here is called Multicultural Memoirs. And I also used to play around with the title, and now I'm just sticking with that one, too. It's work. It works well. Um, And why are the students in my classes uh, so taken by this genre of memoir, Um, and why it's becoming a very, very fruitful way um, for me to teach these classes in adult ed here? And I just wanted to say that the memoir genre is an incredibly rich and diverse one. Um, And similar to what Leslie said about reading fiction as sociology, um, women's first-person narratives and autobiographies and memoirs are located precisely at the intersection of the private and the public. They telescope back and forth between the life of one individual and the broader social and cultural context in which that life takes shape. Now, of course, memoirs vary in literary quality, and I do my best to select books that are rich in substance and significance in terms of the story that's being told and the history that's being illuminated, 
and also the beauty or resonance of the writing itself. Now, many, many memoirs that I encounter, um, and I just absolutely love searching for them and getting suggestions for them and going online and, and thinking about them. Um, many that I encounter, some were written decades ago and others are hot off the press. Um, they all offer, most of them I should say, substantial rewards in, least, in at least one of three ways. Um, they're very well written. They develop a unique, valuable, or rarely illuminated perspective that can serve as a window into a broader social history or they provide insights into the complexities of human psychology and family dynamics at a given historical moment. And a really superior memoir will, will hit kind of a trifecta of all three of those things. And when we get a book like that, we have a really great, compelling discussion. Um, but that doesn't, I don't mean to suggest that a, that a memoir to be valuable and important has to actually succeed on all three of those levels. Um, one of my favorite quotes about autobiographies is that they provide an extended answer to the question, who are you and how did you get to be that way? And that's actually a very profound question. Um, and when it's answered um, in a compelling way in a work of creative nonfiction, um, it can be a very, very exciting thing to grapple with, with how that person has answered that question. I also look for what the writer Patricia Hample calls ambitious memoir. Um, which is not merely a chronicle of experience, but rather, as she puts it, is a story of consciousness contending with experience. There's a tension between the narrative imagination of how that life has been lived, and, and there's a tension between those two things, which is quite interesting. Um, as Vivian Gornick, the writer, puts it, the writer of memoir is responsible for shaping a piece of experience so that it moves from a tale of private interest to one with meaning for the disinterested reader. And we're searching for what that meaning is um, from our different perspectives as students. And of course, we have different opinions about, about these books. Um, and I also think my classes are kind of a sustained answer to Vivian Gornick's contention that memoir is a genre in need of an informed readership. Um, nothing gets my class going like the kind of yearly screed that comes out somewhere or other about how memoir is just a narcissistic, um, pointless genre. Um, uh, and because there's the need for an informed and critically engaged readership. And so I see that as part of my job to help develop my own skills of that, of the, those critical reading skills and those in my students. Um, so we're, we're constantly striving to develop ourselves as critical and informed readers, how to interpret these memoirs not just as literary narratives, but as windows into women's history and culture and social history more generally. And I often incorporate examples from other scholarly or nonfiction books, and it gives me a great excuse to keep up to date or at least try to do so. Um, for example, later this year, we're going to be reading a memoir by um, a woman named Ndesha Idame Holland. Um, I forget the title of it. Uh, from the Mississippi Delta, I believe is the title. Um, but it turns out that in the past year, there are at least two very pathbreaking and very important books nonfiction history books about the roles of women in the civil rights movement that have, are really sort of changing the face of the scholarship and the historiography on this. Um, so I'm going to cram and read those books too and bring them in and, and recommend them and talk about how this one individual memoir also sheds light on a much bigger picture that's taking shape um, and, and a changing picture on into um, the roles of women in the civil rights movement. That's just one example of how we try to contextualize the books that we read in the class. Um, and, and the memoirs take us all over the world. Uh, I pro we often focus on American, the United States, but we're starting to broaden that out um, in, in the past few years. Um, and we talk about intersectionality. We talk about um, race, ethnicity, religion, class, nationality, region, sexuality, gender, how all of these shifting and profoundly influential variables um, of social identity and relations of power are affecting and, and are um, affecting the life of the writer, but also affect how the, the, the story gets told. Um, the, another topic that I just wanted to briefly mention um, is kind of a kind of why feminism question for myself, uh, or what is feminist about these classes, other than the fact that, of course, uh, feminist perspectives are, are always welcome in my class in a way that perhaps they might not be elsewhere or not quite as um, encouraged. But I also see my classes in terms of supporting women in the marketplace of culture. Um, women writers, and, I, and by the way, I also teach a class called Self-Portraits, Women Artists in Modern America. 
um, which I taught for the first time last year, and I'm also doing a new version of that, which is starting in December. If anyone's interested, please come see me afterwards. Um, but whether I'm teaching about women artists in the past or the present or, or, or writers of contemporary memoir or, or fiction or whatever it is, it, that's a feminist project to read a book by a woman author just in and of itself. Um, you know, I sometimes will go on the, the, the book, the book selling websites and I'll see, you know, how you go on and it says people who bought this book also bought that book. And I'll see, you know, books from my courses appearing. And I'm realizing that even though there's only maybe 12 or 14 people in the class, that that actually is not a small number of books to be sold in one month for some of these titles. Um, especially when I try to find books that are not quite as, um, you know, bestsellers, for example, or books from university presses. So that's a feminist project to be and create a, a critically engaged audience for these works. Um, and, um, you know, there's nothing like an author out there on social media hawking her books uh, uh, to make us realize that, that, that a lot of time and effort is, is put into the, the crafting of these books. And uh, all an author wants more than anything is an engaged audience. And so I see, see that as part of that answer as well. Um, I'm not going to say too much about what I think the students get from the class. Um, some of them are here. If they want to speak about that, they can. Um, except to say that for myself, um, it has been far more professionally and personally rewarding than I would have thought it could be to teach these courses. And um, I often think about, you know, maybe I should get back into the uh, undergraduate classroom. And it's been a while since I have, and I, I would like to do so um, and to develop um, a very rich course, you know, in the way that Heather uh, was talking about. Um, but I also have had such a great time uh, doing what I'm doing that I would, I would also hate to give that up uh, if it meant doing so. Um, and I also wanted to say a couple of words about why I took Heather's class and, and the kinds of different ways in which adult education ca uh, can benefit people for, of different ages. And I myself had, had stopped working as an academic for just about over a year, maybe two years, because my older son at the time, who was four and a half, uh, I was teaching an undergraduate class at Sarah Lawrence, and he became very ill with a neurological illness, um, which was quite shocking and out of the blue. And it really absorbed almost all of my my time and my attention and my energy uh, in, in a not very positive way uh, for a couple of years. And then I was really hungering for intellectual stimulation and, and a chance to reconnect with my academic self, which I had to, which by necessity I had to put on hold and was able to do so for him. And I was just scrolling through the website. I'm not an alumna, not, I'm not a Barnard alum. And I came across this class and it was like starting in a month. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take this class. I'm going to get out of my house and drive to Columbia when I wasn't going to a hospital to visit my son. I was going for myself. Um, and it was just an incredible experience. And then I've been very fortunate ever since to be able to teach here. So um, I just wanted to say that um, there are a lot of people out there who are finished with college and may have been so for many years and who are looking for this kind of intellectual community. So I, I'm very grateful that, Leslie, that you started this program um, and honored to, um, to, to serve in this capacity.